This is the Future of Security Operations podcast brought to you by Tynes. This show is dedicated to empowering SecOps leaders to reimagine how their teams work so they can scale their security efforts and build a team that achieves more with less. In each episode, we'll learn from a security leader who has found a way to free their team from tedious manual tasks and remove the barriers that are preventing them from doing high value strategic work that truly matters. We'll learn from their mistakes, distill their best practices, and leave you with actionable insights that you can immediately put to work with your team. I'm your host, Thomas Kinsler, COO and co-founder of Tynes. Now, let's jump right into today's show. Hi, everyone. This week, I'm delighted to be joined on the Future of Security Operations podcast by Diana Kelly, Chief Security and Strategy Officer at Cybreeze, which brings together organizations, security leaders, and job seekers to train and support the next generation of cybersecurity professionals. Named one of Cybersecurity Ventures' 100 Fascinating Females Fighting Cybercrime, Diana has worked in cybersecurity for more than 30 years and was previously the cybersecurity field CTO for Microsoft. She's also a board member and inclusion working group champion at Women in Cybersecurity, an accomplished author, keynote speaker, lecturer, podcast host, and a dozen other uh, amazing achievements. Diana, welcome to the show. Oh, hey, thanks for having me. Um, Before we get started, why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself, your background, and some of the work you do at Cybreeze? Sure. So as you can tell, I've been doing this a long time. I actually fell in love with computers in the 1970s, back when it was the DARPANET here in the United States. And I was lucky enough to get an account to get on a, a system, and it was a, a, a basically restricted a student account. And I, uh, at going through MIT Lincoln Labs, because my dad was a research professor there, I wasn't myself at MIT. In any case, I got onto these systems that were the, the DARPANET, and it was, these computers were connected together, and people could send each other email and instant message each other, and we could play games together. And it's 1978 that my head's popping off. I'm like, this is the most amazing thing in the world. And I really felt it was the future. I also discovered there was a password flaw um, and uh, in, in the system, but way, way back, you know, we weren't thinking about security in the 70s quite the way that we're thinking about it now. But I just, I fell in love with systems and with the fact that we were going to need to secure them. So when I got out of college, that was my career path. And, and I've been very lucky in that I got to work in line. I built and managed a global network for a startup in Cambridge. So I have, you know, the hands-on experience that I got very early in my career. I was very lucky to be a consultant during the 90s when financial services institutions were going online for the first time. So that was just incredible. I was at KPMG at that point and just get got to do some of the just most incredible work. I just feel so lucky to have gotten that chance early on and also to see what I've seen in security. And I've just grown through the industries we've grown and I just follow where I think the most interesting uh, work is going on and also try and focus on where I can provide the most input and feedback to the community. Yeah, that's an incredible journey. Like you've seen security operations evolve so much though from a password vulnerability in DARPANET all the way up to still the same sort of problems, but in the wider uh, in the wider internet. But like, how do you describe the state of security operations today? We used to call it a cold war and I think there's still some level of it because the state of security operations today compared to when I was, I was starting out is so advanced and so sophisticated. I used to joke that Early, early on, I was a quote unquote human sim because the you know, security event information manager. Um, and, and the reason I would say that is that we had 
DH, this is going back a ways, everybody. DHCP really didn't work at the time. So I had to hard code IP addresses for the 300 devices that were in the, the offices I was working in. We had one gateway going out to the internet and I would tail the syslog of that gateway and I would see, and I knew who had the IP addresses and I would watch and I would see that combined with my traffic patterns. You know, I could see if something was going wrong. Did I have a Nick that was just putting a lot of garbage out onto the network or did I have something that people, you know, I, I found out everybody was playing Doom at one point. I had to get the developers to do that after the, the execs had gone home. So the network still was functioning for everyone else. Um, but, you know, so like, that that level that kind of like being able to do a security operations center like that now is just it's mind-blowing and i'm not back in that i'm still alive everybody it was you know it's not like we're talking horse-drawn carriages but now you think of uh, a fusion operation center like they have at microsoft that was looking at when i left it was i think eight trillion security signals a day were going through what the fusion center in Azure had to look at. It's, I'm sure it's much higher now because I've been away from Microsoft for a few years. So um, the difference is just the, the scope and scale of the amount of information that needs to be looked at and the stakeholders that need to be involved too, the number of people at a large organization that need to be taking a look at it. So very sophisticated, um, you know, incredible advances, but that Cold War part is that guess who else is sophisticated and advanced? It's our adversaries. So. Um, what needs to be looked at and what needs to be watched and how stealthy they can be when they get into a system has also advanced quite a bit. So, like, I think there's very few organizations that are operating at the scale of Microsoft's Fusion Center. Yeah. Where they've got like eight, <laughs> yeah. eight tr trillions of events going going through. There still is, unfortunately, in cyber, well, fortunately or unfortunately, there still is that spidey sense of like, wait a second, that person's IP looks a little bit different. Aren't they normally going here? And it's kind of, it's it's hard in modern socks to see some of that still happening, that people still are aware and have to be aware of like, actually, yeah, that's like, that's unusual for this particular device that your SIMs still don't, several still don't, you know, provide that adequate like correlation and context when doing those alerting. I completely agree with that. And I, I haven't been in line sitting and looking at the, the you know, I haven't been a SOC analyst for a mm -hmm. long time, but I, I always ask SOC analysts what they're looking at, what they're seeing. And I'm always curious about exactly that point of, have we gotten to, to where the, the systems are better? Because they're so much better than they were with anomaly detection and being able to tie in, well, this person does travel, or it's but still modern SOC analysts have told me as recently as just a few months ago that still sometimes a person is more able to identify an, a truly anomalous or, or problematic IOA kind of indicator of attack pattern than, than um, a system sometimes, which it shocks me, but it does yeah. come into it does still come into come into play in some yeah. uh, in some events where people are still acting as yeah where like a more senior yeah more senior engineer more senior analyst is more familiar with certain types of types of alerts and is therefore like able to follow That's a slightly it. different uh, slight, slightly different process they, yeah they um, might see a signal that to them reads a little bit differently but when you look like the sheer mass of signal that's coming through if we didn't have automation and tooling to help us with that no human impossible no yeah forget about it. Um, yeah. so, so tell me a little bit about, I suppose, the day-to-day the, the -day job today. Uh, like, what are you advising CISOs? What are you advising your stakeholders on? So, yeah, um, you know, when I'm doing my advisory work, the, the I've been surprised at how much of there's really been a, a push of not compliance for compliance sake, but looking at compliance as kind of a groundwork 
for a risk program. Because for a long time, it was said in security, it was really compliance is like, it's just a checkbox. It's not, you know, it's not useful. It's not. But as compliance has become more and more a part of the business, and it's a part of the business that the CEO and the CFO understand. Because compliance, failure to comply can come with, if it's GDPR, for example, it's 4% of your gross is the penalty, um, you know, potential. Um, you know, that you can, if you do something that's, that's felonious, that could even mean jail in terms of violation, could be loss of um, partners or contracts. Or somebody says, I need a SOC 2 uh, for you. You know, if you don't have a SOC 2, then I don't want to be your partner. So that's, these are all very things that, that executives can really latch onto. When you say there's a SQL injection and it could be a zero day, we could lead to a zero day uh, you know, vulnerability exploit, blah, blah, blah. You know, like it's hard, I think, a lot of times for the executives to go, oh, that makes sense. That's really, you know, they, mm -hmm. they know it, they understand it. Not execs aren't you know, dumb, but it's just, it feels like, is it, it's a maybe, how likely is it, right? Risk is, is likelihood times impact. Likelihood's very hard to quantify. Compliance is a really nice, solid foundation. Have I complied or not? Will this partner do business with me if I have a SOC 2 or not? So what I've seen is that there's, because the executives are looking more at those kinds of pieces of a security program, that CISOs are starting to take, uh, you know, to understand how to bring compliance in as part of their toolkit and use compliance and what compliance needs, matching that to their own security and risk management and coming up with a program that's really blending the two of them together, which I think is, is great. But then a lot of the guidance has to be around truly blending those and also how you don't get out of out of sync with the two of them, because that's a really big potential problem. If you got if you got a big partner coming in and they've, they've got some sort of SIG, um, you know, uh, shared questionnaire that you have to, mm -hmm. to fill out. And it's not unusual at a big company for someone to kind of create policy on the fly mm -hmm. <laughs> in mm -hmm. response to that. So like, yeah, we basically do that and they'll sign off in the agreement with the partner. Yes, Amazon or yes, Microsoft, we do this. And then that goes out. Well, now you, know, you come back with a CSO or CISO is going through things, trying to true things up and has realized that they've actually created policy on the fly. There's no canonical policy anymore. The original canonical policy has been sort of fan fictioned around during these. So trying to get a handle on that has become, um, you know, these are really, really important parts for the, the big company. Um, as always, ransomware, or at least for the past few years, that's one mm -hmm. that huge questions about that, but really getting better with the program and learning to, to blend, uh, blend the, the skill sets and the sets of, of compliance together with security have become really important. It's so, it's so interesting. You talk about that. Like I I've got experience of it, uh, from the other side where, uh, you know, cybersecurity startup, but we were given SIGs. So these documents that, that our customers would give us to ask us, you know, Hey, can you, guarantee that you fulfill all these security requirements in order to to do business yeah. and like being a you know security engineer myself i was like no i can't uh in some cases you'd say yeah like okay this is definitely something we're gonna have to do at some stage in the future so we may as well like start now uh that's that seems totally reasonable uh but in other cases that the policies are made up on the fly and sometimes are even like contradictory where a large yes. company will say things like, you know, you must guarantee that all your passwords will be rotated every six months, or you must ensure that all your vendors uh, are, you know, party to this policy and sign this as well. I'm like, well, you know, as well as I do that AWS is one of our vendors, which, or is one of our suppliers, which means like, I'm never going to get AWS to sign on to this. So I can't sign that line, but also 
rotating your passwords is no longer good security practice. So why are, yeah, why are you suggesting this? You're bringing up these, these specific details, but that is, that's, that's what the whole devil in the details is about. This is exactly the problem is that it's something like, do you rotate your keys? And a company will say, well, we have a policy to rotate, take keys and, but we rotate them here and here. And then you go around and you just realize that there's all these other key stores and your partners have key policies that are different. And that's where the, the trouble truly, not trouble, but I think where the challenge comes in. So looking at, what am I advising around a lot of it is, is how do you manage this complexity mm-hmm. now that we've got, we've, we really do have to have partner management in addition to our security program, in addition to, you know, it's, it's this, this massive influx of different pressures and people want, want to have, you know, a sign off as though it's simple and, and it's not, it's not simple. And I mean, if you've ever gone in and assessed a company and said something like, do you store social security numbers, right? You know, or do you have any Java line around here, right? It's always, nope. And then you do the assessment and you're like, here are the 12 places where you have Java or the 14 repositories where you found social security numbers. Uh, and yeah, even if you don't, I guarantee you at some point, somebody accidentally copied and pasted a social security number or a credit card information into a name field when filling out yeah. some other information. And now congratulations, your Salesforce contains credit card information that you uh, that you didn't know about it or your CRM contains some other sensitive information that it probably uh, it probably shouldn't. Um, when you're, yeah. I suppose when you're talking to talking to these CISOs, especially when you're, I suppose you're talking about that, uh, like that compliance, not just being a checkbox, but driving policy and driving, um, yeah, like tr- trying to, you know, actually in- ensure safety and ensure security of the organization. Do you see C- uh, CISOs trying to persuade CEOs that security can be like a selling point and adding to the top line of the business, not just affecting the bottom line? Yeah, um, I mean, this has always been such a big challenge in security because we've tried this on and off for decades in terms mm-hmm. of the marketing of we're the secure company, whichever, you know, insert mm-hmm. name here. Um, and it's, it is very hard to get customers to pay for security. On the other hand, if they feel that they're getting, you know, that there's, there's no security, they may want to go with the more reliable vendor. So it's this really interesting dance of how do you, put the security in that you need, which is going to be expensive and get customers to pay for it and also want to pay for it. So um, some executives are still not sold on it. Some CEOs are still not sold. You know, they'll go out, can we, can we charge more? Um, other executives, it, it becomes part of the DNA of the company and they do want to have that in so that that really matters to them. And some are just driven by fear of repercussions. Are we going to get sued? Uh, so it, it it depends on the company, it depends on, on who you're having the conversation with, but those are sort of the, the main ways. If you can't get competitive over, is it something that's going to at least build brand trust? And that could then be something that gets more adopted. Speaking of, I suppose, building that brand trust, like there's a, uh, there's a major challenge in security today, which is trying to hire good talent. But I suppose yeah. in cyberies, you're, you're matching like candidates with organizations and organizations with candidates. When you're trying to, or when a CISO is trying to attract uh, good candidates, what are some of the things they can do to ensure that their organization is an organization that, yeah, you know, a candidate might want to go to? Really commit to DE&I and A nice. and allyship. You know, actually, like, not just, again, not make it a compliance checkbox, but truly make that the way that the organization works and make sure, because people, we are a small industry in cyber. So we talk about companies yep. that 
really believe in that and in de and ina deina and and those that just say that they do so really live it at your organization take a look at your because that'll that'll get the buzz around right people get there are certain companies that i can tell you when i worked at ibm and when i worked at microsoft at least once a week somebody said there's a job at your company i want can you help me get it you know these were companies that people targeted in part because yeah. of who they who those companies were to point the brand um but for the the, the players themselves the the actual the, the hiring managers um at hr really take a look at how you're writing those job descriptions you know these kitchen sink job descriptions are just crazy i look at some of them and i'm like and people are constantly telling me you've done a lot i can't believe how much you accomplished you're so organized right and i look at these job descriptions i'm like you'd have to be superhuman to do them or you'd have to be superhuman to have that let a set of experience so um stop with the mindset of like well we're going to ask for you know the war the moon because people are going to apply when they have 10 20 percent of that really ask for what you're looking for because uh, that's going to help you. It's going to help when you're putting the rules into the ATS system to you know, parse through the, the CVs you're getting. Focus on uh, general, not just narrow skills. It's very easy to get focused on. We need somebody who's going to hit the ground running right now. If somebody came to me, if I was hiring and I worked in one of the major three clouds, and I was hiring somebody to be a security expert and I was in cloud A and they had tons of experience with cloud B, I would talk to them about their experience, about what they've done, because basically learning a new a new portal, learning a new set of widgets, learning a new set of rules is not as hard as becoming an expert in the concepts of what is cloud, how is the cloud architected, what's security in the cloud mean. So if I had somebody who's an expert in cloud B, I think I could probably make them an expert in cloud A pretty quickly. The other thing is, how about where people's cross pollination of knowledge goes? Network engineers make great network threat hunters and network monitor and network analysts because they know how that's how I got started. I knew how the networks worked. I put them together. I built them. And then I saw how somebody got into them. And I was like, of course, I didn't think because I was thinking about how it was going to operate, not how somebody could stop it from operating. But that's a that was a really easy as soon as I started thinking, how are they going to stop it from operating? I knew all where all the potential holes were. For example, developers, if you have a developer that says they're interested in becoming an application penetration tester, yeah, you probably have somebody who's going to be your best application pen tester on your team because they know how the, the code works. They know how it operates. So that is a huge thing. If we could just expand hiring to look at that general skill set and how it could apply into these more narrow niche instead of I want somebody if you say I want somebody with six years of application penetration testing and you've got a developer with 10 years of great full stack development that's now wants to look at you probably would be better off to, or you'd be you'd be they're probably equal candidates but you're not thinking of them that way because they didn't fit that mold so it's really about being flexible um, with the experience and then again just making sure that you're writing these job descriptions in a reasonable way. And not, I still see job descriptions that are like, he will do this, he will do that. And it's like, oh, is this, an, I mean, maybe it is. Maybe it's, it's a job just for uh, a male. But if it's not a job just for a male, writing the he could be off-putting to some. That's a, a self-fulfilling prophecy right there, to be honest. <laughs> Potentially, yeah. You're not, uh, not going to get many applicants for that team if the if if the uh, yeah if the if the job description doesn't even uh, doesn't even assume that somebody else could uh, could apply. Right. Um, 
I like I, I want to dive in a tiny little bit deeper to that because like you've written several books, you've you know hosted a podcast uh, on people's journeys into cybersecurity. You're obviously very active in the cybersecurity community, and like you're also you know involved in women's security, the Executive Women's Forum. It's it's not just hiring practices though. There's like there's a whole load more there. What other things can like security leaders, especially those that are allies but don't have that and. I know some of it, but I, I want to hear, hear, hear you say, but like some of those that are looking to improve diversity, but it, it feels that at the start, everyone focuses on recruitment, but recruitment yeah. is only one part of it, right? It's interesting that you talk about the recruitment because I was talking to a, a big four at one point about going in um, mm-hmm. to work at, and uh, they they said, I was asking about their DEI and and they said, well, we have no problem with the hiring. It's the it's the attrition rate that's the problem. Mm-hmm. So they were great with recruitment. They were going out and recruiting a very strong, very balanced workforce, but the balanced workforce got unbalanced as those people went through the, the journey of being at that company. And that's why I think that you're absolutely right with, yes, it's partly about recruitment, but it's in large part about its inclusion. Once people are at the company, are they feeling included? And the main way for people to feel included is, are they being heard? It can be as very simple as every manager making sure during a meeting that people have the opportunity to speak. And at the end, you know, letting people, if you've seen somebody who's been quiet, you can bring them up. As a manager, you have to be careful because sometimes you have extreme introverts on your team. And it, including them does not mean calling them out in the middle of a meeting because that's just going to make things worse. But, um, you know, it's so it's, it's not that, but it's really like making sure that everybody's heard, that the team is respectful. Not every idea is great, but every idea deserves to be listened to. If that person's got the qualifications to be on this team, you deserve to they deserve to be heard out. So managers can help a lot and and other and colleagues can help a lot making sure that people are being heard and respected. And that is one of the most important aspects of inclusion. Just everybody knows you're not going to get your way all the time. You just want to be heard. And if you're heard, be respected. It's it's such a joke that there's a, a commercial about it, right? The, a, a woman says, I think we should do such and such. And everybody ignores yeah. it. And then this other person says, I think we should do it. And everybody goes, that's the best idea ever. I guess it's not just true at like a manager. It's even true at like at a board level. At that level, it's I've learned that sending out and preparing people, especially those for those introverts, preparing people in advance. Like an extrovert's happy to give their opinion on the fly, yes. whereas an introvert's a lot less happy to give their opinion on the fly. They want to be. Yes. And I'm I'm generalizing here, but a little bit more thoughtful. Whereas if you're able to prepare and give advice and like say, hey, here's like here's what we're going to be discussing, and then invite people to give a considered answer you're you're yeah you're you're inviting more people into the conversation and not putting them on the spot in a way that uh, that makes some people feel yeah. a little bit more uh a little bit more uncomfortable yeah and and part of the team everybody wants to be part and to be heard and i think that you know we've all been there in, in meetings and groups where somebody kind of sucks out all the oxygen they can be a great great person and, and adding a huge amount and it's just other people need to be heard too sometimes 100 percent I want to uh, I want to come back to a little bit of what you said uh, earlier, just around I suppose that like that manual work that you were saying was going on in a, going on in various different teams that you were advising. Like one of the issues plaguing security teams is that challenge of manual work. I suppose that also comes into the another major topic of like burnout and mental health uh, related to re- 
repetitive manual work that people are doing all the time. What's, what's, what's been your experience and how, how do you think security teams should address these concerns? Absolutely. Tons of work. We're an interrupt-driven job, right? The attacks mm-hmm. are going to happen most likely at a very busy time, at a very inopportune time. The attackers on purpose at the beginning of the pandemic were going after aid organizations and healthcare organizations. You know, they wait mm-hmm. for the worst time for you, the IT team. So it's that by nature, it's stressful. We have a stressful job. Um, and then there are other things like, you know, sometimes people in IT have to look at is this is this dangerous content, for example? So some some members of our field are looking at pretty awful um, yeah, writing absolutely. and images and videos um, that can that are very stressful. So yeah, we've got it, we've got stress all over the place, and just by definition of the jobs that many of us do, which is why I think the most important thing is for any organization to truly size their team properly. It's really, really tempting nowadays, especially with salaried employees to just, you could just do this. You can just do this other thing. How about this other? And the next thing you know, when you sit down and you size out how many hours that person's really working, you're asking them on average for 50 hours a week. But we started out with we're a bursty kind of, you know, an attack's going to happen at the worst time. You've got somebody who's working 50 hours a week. For most of us, that is exhaustion. I've heard a lot of people say they work 80 hours a week. I've known people that kind of count answering an email, you know, as like an hour of work, but like actually 80 hours a week, that's a very, very hard thing for human beings to do. 50, mm-hmm. you kind of stretch them. So if you're sizing your team at about 50, you've already got them overworked a little bit. Um, so it's most important to size your team properly so that they're not overloaded with work. They're not exhausted so that when those spikes occur, they've got a little bit of extra in their tank. And I know that's very hard. It's, I've had to fight so many times in my career for, um, you know, for extra money, to, you know, for extra people on the team. I've, so many of the, the groups I, I work with, that's a constant battle because security is seen as a cost sector. Uh, but if you don't size the team properly, you've got an exhausted, overworked team. And guess what happens when, people, when human beings are exhausted and overworked? We make mistakes. So now your gatekeepers, your guardians are going to make mistakes because you've run them too hard. And that means they're going to miss those anomalies. They're going to misconfigure things. How many times has it been? Oh, there's this big cloud data breach. What happened? Oh, it was a misconfiguration. It was something because some human made a mistake, most likely because they were exhausted. There was nobody else to check their work. That's another thing. We need people to check our work sometimes. I can't see a mistake I made very often. You know, you can't. Mm-hmm. That's why we have editors. Uh, so, but really being realistic about the the work these people are doing and the time we're asking them and not overloading them before an emergency or before some other disaster occurs. And most companies are not not doing that because they're trying to save money. And I think it's I think it's a penny wise pound foolish kind of thing. but if if we could have more orgs create a plan and size their team appropriately, I think we'd be in a much better shape. Yeah, hundred percent. So, uh, like your observation there, that when people are working fifty hours a week, it's usually when they're work, they're working fifty hours a week before that crazy alert comes in. And what happens then is that you know the, the, what they were working on for those fifty hours a week, it was still important work. It was still yes. that was actually extre- like extremely valuable. But now it's yeah. it's all hands on deck over here yeah. uh, to deal with this and the stuff that was I suppose less in or is all of a sudden less important, but was last week right. critical for them working, you know, 25% of overtime is now exactly. dropped. Uh, and that, that causes a huge, uh, 
a huge challenge as well and can often have, you know, major secondary effects in, uh, in an incident as well. Yep, absolutely. You've seen, you've observed, you've been part of like fast growing uh, security teams at like fast growing technology companies. What advice would you share to people who are starting out on the journey or who are leading those teams? Um, I would make sure that they really understand what job that they've gotten. Take a look around and understand what the company's like now that you're on the inside, where the real problems are, um, what needs to get addressed. And also take the temperature of your stakeholders, because Mm -hmm. essentially cybersecurity, we're kind of a service industry. We're here to service the business so the business can keep going. The business doesn't really care. They would spend zero dollars on security if they could. I mean, you know, we're, we're there because of like that time when I was, you know, back at Dataware, when someone got into my network, well, and then the systems were going to fail. Okay, so we needed security to keep the business running. But understand that that's, you know, that's it, is that the, the security for business running is the most important thing, that you're serving the business, you're serving your constituents. When you get into that job, take a look around at who the other people that, who the people you're servicing in HR and legal and procurement and engineering and sales, and think about how you can help them and what you can do for them, because they're going to be your biggest allies if you can get them on your side. And the last thing, and which a lot of times I don't see people thinking, they see security as I'm going to tell you where you're wrong versus I'm the ally here to talk to you and, and kind of help to get you to go to make the right, I'm here to help you make the right decisions, right? I can't tell you, I'm not, not so going to come, you know, from the big mountain and come down and say thou have to. Um, so I think that that's sort of, that that's a big one. The other thing I think that's really important is, is not just that, is in addition to that service mentality is to also understand that when security is deployed properly, it's something that is, is kind of, it's not seen as much by the organization. So that you're gonna have to figure out ways to show that you've got an effect by being quiet and by being in, in their, their lives. Um, with that, and there's that old joke is, you know, that with security is that you know, nobody says thank you when, we, when an, an attack hasn't occurred that day. But being able to measure that to show your impact and your improvement, even in your quiet service role is going to be really, really important. And another piece, especially if you're in a CISO level role, is understand your liability. CISOs can be the person that get rolled on. You know, there's a breach. And publicly, and we've seen this happen in the news, you know, publicly it's, oh, it was all the, the you know, the, it was all the CISO's fault. They had the wrong background or something, right? Well, you hired them. And, and sometimes it's something like, you know, p- patching, right? Show me a company that's 100% patched everywhere. Uh, you know, it's pretty rare. So uh, remember, like, with if you're the CISO, what's your real liability? Are you at a company that's going to roll on you? Or are you at a company that understands what your, your true liability is and, and will they support you in an ethical response to if there's a breach and how you report it? Because if you did get to a company that isn't going to support you as an ethical CISO, then that's going to be a problem too. What you touched on there was it's it's a really hard challenge, and you kind of like you suggested one or two ways there. But like, how do you measure, or how, how have you seen companies measure the success of their program to show they're improving when, yeah, when it's not 
you know, hey, we prevented, you know, we prevented X number of attacks or we detected X number of attacks yeah. and like remediated them quickly. But what are some what are some good measures of success for security programs? Yeah, most boards don't really care. Like we got rid of this many high sev phones and that that app before we launched it. Most most board members don't care. What they really care about is if you've set targets together mm-hmm. and how how much progress you've made towards meeting that targets. When the board signs on to a target, if you say we're going to change our identity management, um, we're going to go with a new directory, right? Then, and you get the board or the C-suite that then reports to the board that this is, this is, this is the executive management decision, that this is, these are targets. Then you can show your progress to those targets, which is fantastic because that's going to be one of your biggest, you, you've gotten them to on board with you in advance. And now it's your project together that you're you're monitoring the success of it along the way. And the reason that I say that it's fantastic is that there are a couple of other things that are because and that's in your control. There are a couple of things that are out of your control that will happen every year that could be good or bad for you with the board. So you want to have this thing that you agree on that you're working on these targets, how close you're getting to them, and that's that's you with the board for what's going to make this company bigger. The two wild cards are not wild cards, but the other forcing factors are going to be your your assessments. It's pretty common if you're at a medium to large size company that when an assessor comes in, and remember I worked at a big four, um, when an assessment comes in, they're going to find something. It's kind of their job. They're going to find something and no company is perfect. So there's going to be some sort of material deficiency out of after this assessment, that assessment goes up to the board. If it's something that you're already working on and your targets, the board's going to be like, you're brilliant. You yeah. anticipated that we've already got the path in here. If it isn't something you were working on, and they know you've got a lot you're working on, you have the conversation about how you address that. The other thing that's going to be that like sort of out of your, your plan is any kind of breach or attack. At this point in time, every company is under attack and most companies are going to have some level of infiltration during the year. And an infiltration could be somebody clicked on the wrong email, but the activity, you know, it it landed some malware on one device. That device was isolated. It was removed from the system. It was cleaned. It was re-imaged. It's fine. So that the damage, the, the, the blast radius is very contained. Uh, but you can't control if you're going to get, you can try and prevent as much as you can, but we know we need to be resilient. So when those breaches occur, talk to them about how quickly you responded, how much it cost the company, how actively you could contain it. There's great numbers that come out of the Ponemon Institute every year in their cost of data breach survey about how many, how in hard numbers, how much cheaper it is if you can get the mean time to identify MTTI and mean time to contain MTTC down lower so that then again there's another win yes there was a breach but look at how quickly you identified and contained it and how much money was saved so those are the big three talking to the execs yeah and uh, it is no longer like if it's when and how you respond and that's what you're going to be judged on these days on like fortunately or unfortunately and if you can show hey actually we did a reasonably good job your peers in the security industry and most professionals are gonna be like okay yeah they were unlucky you were they did a yeah they did a really good uh they did a really good job here they caught it and and if someone gets into your system and doesn't actually get to your quote crown jewels doesn't get to the really sensitive data Mm -hmm. and you can prove that then yeah they got in but they didn't get anything valuable and that's a huge that's a huge win you may not depending on what happens that might not be yeah, I mean, I'll talk to my marketing team and say, hey, we should be positioning this as a win. But at the same time, it's still, uh, <laughs> it's still something that uh, that you can definitely both play. And yeah, definitely the, the best the best CISOs uh, that I've 
that I've worked with have all been kind of masters at playing that. Oh, well, actually, I know where I'm a little bit worried about my and insert area that they're focusing on this year. And somehow they're the findings that the external auditor will showcase in their, uh, uh, in their, yeah. in their findings that year. And if you can, not suggesting that anybody goes down and plays that game actively it's dangerous but at the same time it's uh it, it can be quite effective you know it can be very organic too yeah. i mean it really i have seen that just very organically happen the CISO is on top of it understands where the big exposures for the company are and creates a a, a program to address those exposures and then sure they they know when the assessor comes in they're going to get hit on that exposures but they if they've they've pre had that conversation, now the execs are saying, "Oh, you were on top of it," versus you got caught out by it. Like you've seen security and security operations evolve a whole load over the last yeah, thirty years of your career, I suppose. Can can you tell me what do you think security and security operations teams are going to look like in even just five years from now? That's a that's a really hard question. I'm trying to You're make it sound. I'm trying to make it sound easy. <laughs> We're going to be in spaceships. Um, no, I, th- I think we're going to be a lot more distributed. I think that the, um, you know, there was a, a time there about 10 years ago when you were starting to see a lot more aggregation of socks and socks were looking like these really cool, you know, next gen kind mm-hmm. of rooms. Um, we even built one when I was at IBM for, for customers to come to the X-Force command center. Uh, so I, I think that, you know, that's sort of how people kind of in their mind see socks, but I think more and more what we're gonna see is, is atomized socks, socks that are distributed just like us. Now we've got a really wide distributed workforce. A lot of people are working from home, work from home, work in the office, work at some other office. You know, there's a lot of freedom. So the same, I think, is going to happen with SOX. We're going to have a lot of, of we're going to have distributed teams working. You can follow the sun so that you, you can have multiple shifts, but they're in, I mean, obviously not the data center physical folks who have to make sure that stuff isn't, you know, <laughs> blowing up in the data center, like physically, but the socks themselves, I think we're going to see more and more divided, um, more and more distributed. I think we'll also see with socks, we're going to see that um, more and more outsourced at a smaller, at the lower level of the mm-hmm. market. You know, there were some medium companies I know that created their own socks. It was very expensive. They really didn't have the time or, or energy to be able to manage it. They're going back to outsourcing. And I know some people say outsourcing is so like the wave coming, you know, it's like in and out on the tides. It's like we insource, we outsource. Um, but I do think that for smaller companies working, you know, having your sock with your uh, managed extended detection and response you know, provider may make more sense for them. And then I think it's also we're going to see more and more uh, automation, especially with AI and ML, which is what we we started at the top of the hour um, or top of the top of this conversation with. Um, but anyway, yeah, I think that, that more of that going on with the automation. And I hope I'm really very hopeful that we use the AI and ML to support the humans, not just to not replace the humans because we need jobs, because, look, humans will have other jobs to do, mm-hmm. um, but to support the humans because the AI and ML, as we've talked about uh, previously before this call, um, we, you know, we talked about that you can't always know that what came out of the AI solution was accurate. And we were talking about ChatGPT, which sort of almost hilariously, not just is wrong, but is just insanely confident when it's wrong. <laughs> you know? What is like one particular incident in your career that you remember and what did you learn from it? I use a recent one in a company where I was the, the fractional um, CSO, and it was 
it, what I learned from it, it, it was it came in through a fishing, you know, it was a fish, uh, but it was it was what I would call a laser fish. It was just so well crafted that there was really no way that the person that received it could right. have could have understood because what they did was they it was the right amount. It was the right company for something that had been done. All they did was they just changed the routing information. Yeah. So with that, I mean, to your point, like back, right, BC, we've been handling, we've been talking about this for well over a decade and still here it was, this came in and it was even better than anything. I hadn't seen it with just, it was just the routing information. You know, <laughs> like it's like, wow. And how many, how many of you have memorized the routing information of all your vendors and would identify if one was a few digits off? Yeah. Um, so, and, and actually what was interesting was that the way that this was caught was that the person didn't expect it to come in through an email. They expected it to come in through a different format. So they, they did actually make the call and say, Hey, you usually don't send me the bills this way. This isn't normal. But so the, the, again, what, what goes for me there is that one, the same mold is still working. We tend to in cyber move on. We're like, Oh, show me like the new cool. I want to see the deep Keanu fake or whatever. Um, they're still just getting in with a lot of really good Intel and, and knowledge and coming in the old fashioned way, like by email. Um, so that was a good reminder. And then the other one was just a really wonderful reminder that it's, Security awareness. It is. It mm -hmm. gets to be. You hear it so often. It's so cool to call people idiots and we're fools and we're going to click the link to see the dancing cats or whatever. Uh, but you know, we are also your first line of defense. And great security awareness is one of the strongest components of a security program. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that that problem is insidious, but it's a yeah, it's a great uh, a great answer. Um, Jenna, I've really enjoyed this conversation, but unfortunately, that's all we're going to have time for today. <laughs> um. If people want to follow you and your career, what's the best way to what's the best way to do it? LinkedIn, Diana LinkedIn. Kelly with the extra e. I know that's wrong. They spelled it when they were coming over Ellis Island, supposedly. So I know in Ireland it, it usually doesn't have the extra e. Yeah, mo mostly. Uh, but there's there's a whole load uh, at this point that that do. So we'll uh, we'll accept it. you can you can extra retain uh, retain honor, honor, honorary <laughs> status. So uh, thank you so much for coming on, and we hope to have you on again in the future. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Future of Security Operations podcast by Tynes. If you enjoyed today's show, please do us a favor and leave us a review on Apple Podcast or your preferred podcast platform. For additional episodes, visit tynes.com slash podcast. And if you'd like to learn more about how Tynes Automation Platform can transform your security operations team, visit tynes.com. Thanks again, and I'll catch you on the next episode.